So, we are back with Joe. If you haven't seen the series of the Joey Barnett part one and two, the links will be in the description box below the video, as will links to Joe's socials and his book, which is doing really well. And he's got about half a million views now on the podcast and clips combined. And one particular clip went viral about the sad case of the murder of James Bulger. And I just want to apologize for a few little mistakes that were made in that story. We're going to rectify that starting out this podcast today. And um, I, I first just, just like to thank Joe for coming back on. Cheers. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on your platform. Yeah, you're welcome, man. It's um, getting massive responses. Um, this clip went out about Bulger. And there was a situation in the prison with one of his murders, and you will get to that, but... Just to make sure everything is scientifically correct, I'm going to read what happened here for this poor lad, only two years old. So 16th of March 1990 um, to 12th of February 1993 was how long James Bulger was alive. See, I left the country in 1991, that's why I didn't, you know, I, I never saw this in the news in America. So he was a two-year-old boy from Kirby, Merseyside, so that's just outside of Liverpool, not far from my hometown, Witness, actually. Now, he was abducted, tortured, and killed by two 10-year-old boys. How insane is this? And their names were Robert Thompson and John Venables. This happened on Friday, 12th of February, 1993. Thompson and Venables led Bulger away from the New Strand shopping centre in Bootle as his mum had taken her eyes off him just temporarily. Bloody hell. His mutilated body was found on a railway line 2.5 miles away in Walton, Liverpool, two days after his abduction. Thompson and Venables were charged on 20th of Feb, 93, with abduction and murder. They were found guilty on November 24th, making the youngest convicted murderers in modern British history. Sentenced to detention at Her Majesty's pleasure until a board decision in June 2001, recommended their release on a lifelong license, age 18. In 2010, Venables was sent to prison for breaching the terms of his license and was released on parole again in 2013. In November 2017, Venables was once again sent to prison for possessing child abuse images on his computer. And this uh, case has prompted widespread debate about how to handle young offenders when they are sentenced or released from custody. And that's just the beginning of the Wikipedia page for the murder of James Bulger. So if you want to look up that, and that is the correct story. So last time, um, you know, Joe has done many, many years in prison, 30 plus. And, um, you know, that's a long time. There's a lot of stories, a lot happened over that period of time. What happened with him and Venables definitely happened but joe just got a few of the uh details mixed up and we do apologize for that and obviously no um offense was intended to be caused to anyone you know uh, family members or anything like that and our hearts do go out to them and um you know i'll i'll, I'll let joe pick up from there yeah um i'm sorry guys i did get the story mixed up a little bit um it's just the name Venable stuck in my mind um, because it is a story what obviously it shocked the nation and it was such a tragedy. Um, 
I didn't really, uh, you know, um, when I see him in Wayland in 2010, I didn't know what he looked like or anything. I didn't have a clue about him because obviously they changed his name by the time I see him. Um, and I could walk straight past him and I wouldn't even recognise him. Um, it wasn't until one of the officers in HMP Wayland in 2010 actually come into my cell and told me um, who he was and what the crack was and what he was in for. Um, and that's what, what happened, um, what happened, happened. Um, after I got told who he was. Um, basically, he tried to come into Wayland Prison um, <clears throat> on normal location. So it might have been where he's done so many years in jail and he, 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 um, he, he thought he'd chance his, um, chance his luck on normal location, you know. Um, and obviously where they changed his name to, Sean, so it wasn't out of the ordinary for um, Venables to be on normal location. At first, when he first got arrested for, for the murder, it would have been abnormal to put Venables on normal location because his name was so hyped up in the social media um, that it would have been inevitable that he would have got it a lot sooner than what he actually did get it. Um, so yeah, um, it, you know, I wouldn't have known who he was um, unless it was down to an officer what told me. Um, and I took the opportunity up and I'd done what I had to do. Um, and I also got questioned for it and the CID coming to the um, Wayland prison one day before I was being released from prison to interview me about um, an alleged assault which happened on, um, on John Venables. Um, after reading um, the case and going over a few questions and having a chat with the CID officer, <clears throat> she decided that um, there wasn't enough evidence and she NFA'd it, which is no further action. And I was released from prison um, the very next day. Wow. So I was close call, wasn't it? Very, very close call. And it's something really a lot of, Do I regret doing it? Doing it? No. I don't regret doing it. Would I do it again? No. I look at things different now. Um, but at that time, I didn't really know, I couldn't see any consequences for my actions at that time. Um, I know it was 2010, but it was an opportunity that obviously I couldn't refuse. Um, because I was used in um, various other prison systems as the same type of thing. Officers would, um, that would, would know me from going to jail for over the years, get close to me, and they'd leak out the information of um, all the paedophiles were, which I was very grateful for because that's what actually what, what helped me get through my sentence um, each day. I know it sounds a bit crazy, but it was a little bit of action, and any action in jail to take you away from the situation, what you're in is a good thing. So. Um, that's the, that's the case with John Venables and um, James Bolger. Um, I'm very sorry if I did get my first story mixed up. As Sean explained, I've done many years in prison. Um, I've been around many different high-profile um, cases. Um, I suffer with PTSD and I've also got mental health issues, um, which isn't really plain to see, but um, deep inside me, you know, um, I suffer with mental health issues. So. It was inevitable I would get a few of the stories mixed up, Sean, but I'm very sorry if I did um, cause anyone any distress by getting that story mixed up. And just to, you know, so people can understand how sad this case is, um, evidence, camera evidence was taken from the New Strand Shopping Centre in Bootle, showing Thompson and Venables casually observing children until they selected a target. The boys were playing truant from school which they did regularly, and throughout the day, they were seen stealing various items 
including sweets and a troll doll, some batteries in a can of blue paint, some of which was found at the murder scene. One of them later revealed that they were planning to find a child to abduct, lead him to the busy road alongside the shopping centre and push him into the path of oncoming traffic. It's despicable, isn't it, Sean? Despicable. What the hell? That same afternoon, Bulger from Kirby went with his mother, Denise, to the New Strand Centre. Whilst inside the AR Times butcher's shop on the lower floor of the centre, Denise, who had let go of her son's hand while paying for her shopping, realised that he had left the shop. Thompson and Venables approached him, took him by the hand and led him out of the shopping centre, all caught on camera. Took him to the Leeds and Liverpool Canal, a quarter of a mile from the centre, where they dropped him on his head and he suffered injuries to his face. They joked about pushing him into the canal. An eyewitness during the trial said that when he saw Bulger at the canal, he was crying his eyes out. Oh, God, I can't read any more of this. This is horrible, isn't it? You know, so you can understand um, when someone puts um, the name in front of you and says, like, you know, who he is and what he's done. Yeah. I don't know many people wouldn't have done what I've done, um, mm. to be honest with you. And it would have been a lot harder for me to walk away from the situation than what it would to actually deal with that situation at that time. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, people like him are despicable. They're scum, you know, and the public uh, deserve a a better place than having scumbags like that walking about. Um, and then he gets a second chance at life and he's got child porn. Yeah, it's, this is what I'm saying. The thing is, when I'm not, tar I'm not targeting paedophiles, um, but when paedophiles, the p prolific paedophiles, um, go to jail, they don't get treated as uh, convicts. They actually get treated as patients. So it's like a hotel to them, you know? They get playstations, they get easy chairs, they get quilts, they get curtains, and they all get they all get put onto one wing, and because they're all in the same boat, they're all paedophiles, so, it, you know, it's not quite, it's not um, punishment or deterrent for them, um, and then they get put on courses to do different courses, all paid by the taxpayers' uh, money, and most of them fail, do you know what I mean? So, it was good that one of them did slip through the net every now and then and one of them come a crop up because that's what they deserve. And if you want to see more about that, um, the Joey Barnett playlist now, we've got loads of videos on it and um, one's about the hit list that the guards put out. Is it because they get all those luxuries and the courses and everything that the guards are a bit, a bit pissed off about that? Is that? Does that also motivate the hit list as well as the nature of the crime? No, the hit list can... Um, the, hit, the names on the hit list will only go out if... Um, the guys on the hit list are on normal location, so ah, so they're right, they're undercover in normal location. Yeah, so when you get, when a paedophile goes to reception, he gets offered whether he wants to go on rule forty three or protection, um, right. and some some of them fancy their chances and, and try and go on normal location. Yeah. Um, it, it's them it's them ones you know um, get leaked the uh, their names get leaked um, because at the end of the day. Prison officers don't like them. No one likes them. You know, it's only a job. And I saw the exact same thing in Arizona. Convict justice. Yeah, there was one next door to me, and he was living with the head of the Mexican gang. And when they he went to court, he showed his case on the TV in the day room that he molested his niece. So they waited till a guard did a security walk. So they had thirty minutes to torture him. And I've never heard such sounds before in my life, like like animals, like a cat on fire or something. And when he came out, he was covered in head from 
blood, blood from head to toe. And um, he just banged on the plexiglass and the guards opened the sliding door and he just collapsed and that was it. We never saw him again. Yeah, so it happens in, yeah. in every country. Every, it happens in every up and down the country. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, going back on that hit list, um, if um, a paedophile comes into jail and he fancies his chances on normal location, then the officers will pick up on it and obviously there'll be a, a, a file in the office on the wing um, called their page 16. So every inmate has a file and it's called a page 16. Um, and the officers, although inmates don't don't know that officers are, right, are doing write-ups on them and they don't know that they've been observed and watched um, every inmate in prison has been observed and watched and there's a thing called a page 16 um, and that's what, what that's all the reports what happens in prison um, just so that when you go from one prison to another because if you've got ba your page 16 is all bad bad write-ups when you go to the next prison the next the next uh, establishment will pick up your page 16 and then they can like stereotype you type of thing um, as your behaviour of what happened in the last jail will follow you to the next jail. But um, yeah, hit list. Um, uh, hit list do fly about, and they're still flying. They're still flying about today, Sean, um, in prisons, and rightly so. Do you know, rightly so. I don't. I don't condemn violence, and I'm not a violent person myself now. But um, I do believe in convict justice. So that's that story cleared up, Sean. So from um, the videos that we've all done so far, then. Um, have you been reading the comments and what, what have you been thinking of the reception coming in and the questions and stuff like that for you? You know, every day I wake up and, and I put my um, phone on and check the, um, check the podcast, check all my, um, our podcast and the comments are unbelievable, so inspiring. Um, you know, I've had a few um, bad ones, but mostly they've been good ones and the, um, the positive comments are outweighing the negative comments. It's like 90, almost 100%, isn't it? Yes, it's absolutely amazing. Um, you know, the first podcast which we've done, me and you, Sean, and the second one, um, it's, it's gave me so much opportunity or so many opportunities um, and opened many other doors. I've got um, loads of um, directors, um, different firms getting in touch with me and wanting my story, wow. um, wanting me to go into their schools and youth clubs, young offenders' prisons um, as a motivational speaker. Um, it's not something what I've done, but it's something what I'm looking at doing. Um, yeah. But to be honest with you, although I come across as co confident, I'm um, I'm a nervous wreck when I go on these podcasts. Sean, um, for instance, like on the way down here today, I bought my missus because um, we killed two birds in one stone because she's going to London to see her family, and I was coming to Guildford to see you, Sean. So we both we both come down here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's been it's been absolutely amazing, Sean. The, the comments, um, um, unbelievable, unbelievable. Right then, all right. So you said that there was a murder in your family that you're able to talk about. Is that is that still the case? Yeah. Um, two thousand ten. Um, it happened. Two thousand twenty one. It happened a few years ago, um, and it was my uncle which got murdered. Um, it was my mum's brother, and his name is Peter Lee. Um, he come from Streatham, southwest London, and he's, he's lived there all of his life. Um, he was 76 years of age. 
one afternoon around four o'clock um, my uncle lived in a, in a lovely house a three-bedroom house with his two sons um, Terry and Danny which big respect to you and a big shout out to Terry and Danny a lovely cousin and um, one afternoon my uncle went down to the dentist to get his dentures fitted so he'd left the house and my two cousins were in the house on their own not long after my uncle left the house there was a knock on the door um, and my cousin opened the door up to his surprise he see three hooded men with machetes axes and knives um, and they'd actually come to my uncle's house to rob him thinking that he was on his own he was a pensioner on his own um, I don't know where they got that information from but that's what they thought and they was there to rob him um, as luck had it at this time Peter wasn't wasn't in he was down the dentist as I said a fight broke out on the doorstep and the fight went into the house um, at this time Terry and Danny both of my cousins were both struggling for their lives um, they're fighting three hooded men with knives and machetes and axes um, and a big massive fight broke out so one of the uh, robbers or crackheads or scumbags whatever you want to call them um, had gotten away and he had gone to pick his car up which was parked at the top of the road so they come prepared with tools with a vehicle to rob my uncle and his own a pensioner one of them broke out or got out sorry not broke out one of them got out over the back garden fence and run up to um, pick his car up his two co-defendants were um, still inside the house at this time um, fighting with my two cousins um, which my two cousins both ended up in hospital with stab wounds too after I'm not too sure how long they was fighting for Sean but it must have felt like a lifetime to my two cousins can imagine just three hooded men with machetes axes and knives show up not long after one broke out to go and pick his car up to pick his other to pick his other two co-defendants up in the house to obviously get them away um, my uncle um, come out of the dentist and he was walking home and he was he was walking out walking home so as he got as he as my uncle entered his house uh, at the side of his house he noticed one of his boys or two of his boys screaming um, and at this time my uncle was just outside his house on the uh, pavement so if that's the house there the pavement's there my uncle standing there is he hasn't got a clue what's gone on he didn't see none of the um what happened he didn't see who come around or what all he all he can see is his two boys are, are fighting for their lives um he didn't notice the car coming down but the car come down golf rise which is the side of his house in streatham so the car come down to pick his two co-defendants up and my uncle was just on the pavement there so as the cars come down like that he's hit my uncle knocked him unconscious stopped looked out of his mirror put the car in reverse which is a four-wheel drive car and then reversed over my uncle to make sure he was dead 
Now my uncle was my uncle Peter was wrapped around a wheel. Holy shit! And he was dead on the pavement. Um, both of my cousins Terry and Danny had horrific injuries. But I was fighting for their life, and Danny. He went up to his dad, which was my uncle Peter, in the in the on the pavement. The car sped off, so the car didn't stop, and the two guys got out of the house and got into the car, and they sped off. So three of them sped off, leaving my uncle dead in the road, and my two cousins both stabbed and in a bad way, fighting for their lives. My my cousin Danny went up to his dad, Peter, um, and obviously put his, heart, put his arm underneath his dad's head to cradle his head. And he looked at Terry, which was my other cousin, and said, it's too late, he's dead. Um, shortly after, yeah, um, the ambulance has come, the blue sirens come, the police came, the three um, co-defendants had got away and both of my cousins ended up in St. George's Hospital um, being treated with, for stab wounds. It wasn't until um, those being treated for the stab wounds laid up in the hospital beds that Terry, my cousin, actually rang me, um, but I was 80 miles away in Littlehampton and they live in London. Terry tried to explain to me what had happened um, about Peter, about Peter, about his dad, which was my uncle, and um, would I bring a few of my family members down to the hospital to say goodbye to my uncle Peter, which um, which this happened probably around 30 minutes after Peter had died. Um, I got the phone call, so I rounded quite a few of my family members up, um, chucked them all in a car. We were well overloaded, but there was a few carloads, two carloads of us. And um, we all went down to St. George's Hospital in Tooting and um, went on to the ward. And we see Terry in one bed and Danny in the other bed. Those both crying their eyes out and obviously stitched up, had blood all over them. Um, Peter, my uncle, I don't know how it happened, but... He went through for surgery. Um, I'm not too sure what happened there, because as far as I was concerned, he was dead before he got in the ambulance. Um, but he went for surgery. They might have um, brought him back or resuscitated him or something like that, Sean. I'm not too sure. But he went for surgery on his legs um, to have pins and where... He, the car at him, took his legs out, broke every bone in his legs. But um, they obviously had to sedate him to put him under um, a local anaesthetic or general anaesthetic to uh, operate on him, Sean. So, uh, and they, he had all the um, breathing apparatus, the drips and everything else around him. Um, the operation went successful and they, um, they, they put Peter back onto... Um, in the ICU unit, but he was in a set in a, uh, a private cubicle. Um, when we got into the hospital, um, 
Terry and Danny told me and my other cousins where his dad was and um, would, be like, would, would be like to go up and say goodbye to Peter. So we went upstairs. Um, I went up to the nurse on the ICU unit and explained that we were family and we'd like to say goodbye, um, which they granted to us. And um, we all went in two at a time, held Peter and said goodbye to Peter. Um, but yeah, Peter died of the injuries. Um, Terry and Danny were stitched up in the hospital, um, but you know, they was devastating. They still are today, you know, and, and so is all the rest of our family. Cause we've got a very close-knit family and you hear about these things on TV all the time, you know, um, or films, you know, but you don't really hear about many things like this, what happened in your direct family, you know, and this happened in my family and it, it destroys, it, it has, destroys you, Sean, do you know what I mean? Um, so they went on the run, um, three of them went on the run. Um, a short while later, um, they got apprehended and got arrested um, and got put on remand for murder of my uncle Peter Lee. Um, and people can look this up if they want online. If you put, if you put in Peter Lee, Lee spelled L-E-E, -E, if you want to see the details of the case. The worst thing about it is These three co-defendants were killed my uncle. They actually went not guilty. And they was on like a, a six week, eight week trial. So my cousins, what I just witnessed their dad being murdered, had to go to court every day with that in their head, knowing that these three scumbags had killed their dad. They had to stand in that dock and they had to give evidence. And they was cross-examined by these three, three co-defendants barristers and solicitors, my cousins were cross-examined. Um, I believe they got, um, I've got it down to a manslaughter, which I don't know how, because they went around the house with knives, tools, and it was a planned attack. It wasn't a spur of a moment thing, it was a planned attack because they went around there with tools and knives, thinking that my uncle was in the house on his own. Um, which he wasn't at that time, my two cousins was in there. So yeah, they got it down to a manslaughter. I'm not too sure of the sentences. One got eight years, something stupid. One got both, all three of them had um, extensive previous convictions, extensive um, in and out of prisons for violence all of their life. Um, and those drug addicts, those crackheads, and there was funding the crack habit. Um, the, horrible th the horrible thing about it is I actually know one of the, one of the co-defendants who murdered my uncle and his family know me. Um, so it's pretty hard, you know, because he was my uncle at the end of the day and it, it was my mum's brother, so I love him dearly and I miss him so much. And he didn't deserve to die like that. He was a very, he lived, Peter Lee lived for his grandkids he lived for his children. Um, he was a family man. He didn't harm no one. He wasn't violent. He had nothing but love for people. And this is how you get repaid in life, by scumbags like that. 
killing your uncle. Um, so going on that subject, Sean, this is what the world's come to now. Um, the respect, the morals, the solidarity, it's all gone these days. Um, all three of them got sentenced and convicted and one of them hung herself whilst he is on remand. I think it was in Wandsworth Prison or High Down Wandsworth, I think. Yeah. One of them hung herself um, before the trial started and he was out on licence for a Section 18 GBH. He'd just done 10 years. Was that the driver? Yeah, I think so. I know he was out on licence and, you know, he would have definitely got an IPP sentence or a life sentence because he was on licence for violence. So, he hung himself before the, the trial went went forward, got on. Um, I believe the other two are out now, Sean. Are they? Yeah, they're out. Um, done half of their sentence and got released. Wow. So this is what this is what the public are up against these days, you know. Um, you can go around, or you, you shouldn't be able to go around and murder someone and do four or five years and then get out of, of prison because you, you're, you're now a, a threat to the public, you're a danger to the public, and the public des don't deserve. Get a bigger sentence for drugs. Exactly. It's all upside down. And, and, and going back on paedophile, Sean, um, I'm not... St I'm not Digging paedophiles out, I, it's, it's, it's plain to see I don't like paedophiles. But what I'm saying is, there's no justice in that sense. They don't get a bigger sentence as someone like what murdered my uncle do. And two of these co-defendants are out on the street now, getting on with their normal lives, you know, playing happy families. When we're left now with the heartache, the faults and the tears, you know, um, very close family we was. And... It's hard. It's hard for me to talk to Terry and Danny about it because it was their dad and they can't bring it to the table. They can't come to terms and they can't talk about it. This is why I'm bringing you guys this story um, on behalf of both my cousins. And, you know, these stories tie into what changes we want to be made in the system and murderers getting out with, like after just so many years sexual predators getting out after so many years, slaps on the wrist sentences, yet, you know, the cops targeting people for drug offences and getting giving them life sentences. It's absolutely insane. And in one of the articles, it said that the, the crackheads that attempted this robbery thought there was weed in the house. So, you know, if, if, if weed was legalised, this never would have happened. How many podcast guests have we spoke to where the craziest stuff in the world happens and people die or something really bad happens to someone and this would not have happened if <coughs> weed was completely legalised? It's causing chaos all over the world, these drug laws, and we just see it time and time again with um, guest after guest after guest on this show. It just becomes more and more apparent. Hence, solidifying our belief in our mission statements, end the war on drugs and take all those resources and go after the predators. So coming in, in here today, you know, we were talking affectionately about Yami and um, just want to give Yami a shout out. He's got a new channel now 
and he's um, you know he always gets a, a a big following very fast. He's so charismatic, so positive. And I'm just wondering if you've got any untold Yami stories. I remember when I first met Yami, it was in the early 90s, and um, I've got so much love for Yami and respect for Yami. Um, you know, we've, we've done a lot of bird together, and he wears his art on his sleeves very, very similar to me. Um, we've got a very similar background, me and Yami, you know, we had a lot in common. Um, I've spoken to Yami on numerous occasions since we've been out of jail, and I'm over the moon he's out, do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah. When I was in Belmarsh uh, in 1999, I was going up to the hot plate one day and Yami was behind me um, in the queue, dinner time. And um, I had the ump this day. They just put, um, they just put someone in my cell and I did, I, was, um, I did warn the officers and said, look, I'm a high risk and I shouldn't be put in a double cell. So um, I wasn't too uh, happy about the situation anyway. Um, at that time, and I know I'd jump that time. Um, you know, I've just been given 12 years, and um, you get you get days when you, you have good days and you have bad days. And this day, it was a bad day for me. I was down on the hot plate, get, queuing up for my dinner, and um, Yami was standing behind me and was having a little discussion. And I said to Yami, I said, Look at that crap there, the addition up here. Look, the chips were stone cold and hard, the peas still had frost on them, it had a pie on it. It was absolutely ranked, do you know what I mean? And I said to Yami, I said, I'll tell you what, Yami, I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to have a bit of a laugh here. I'm going to throw this lot straight over a screw. And, you know, people might not believe it and people might think he's, he's like, exaggerating, but this is what happened, do you know what I mean? Um, because then days, I didn't really care about what happened. I, I didn't care about the consequences. Um, I lived for that moment at that time. I was doing 12 years, and whatever I had to do to get through them 12 years, that's what I've done. And it must have worked, Sean, because I'm still here sitting in to tell you the towels. But anyway, I went up to the hot plate and I started dishing me some cold food out and I, I patted, patted Yami and I said, watch this one. And I just got me trying, I went crash. And I just covered one of the screws with like my plate and there was metal plates in, wow. metal trays. Just covered the screw with it, do you know what I mean? And Yami, Yami, I'll never forget him because a few of the op plate officers jumped over the jump and they'd gone on the bill, you know, they was going to restrain me and take me down the block, which I knew already, you know what I mean? I knew they was going to do that. But I'll give Yami his due on this occasion. Um, two of the officers restrained me and put me onto the floor. And Yami actually come up to one of the officers and said, you don't need to bend them up like that. You've got him down already. You've got him in restraints. Like, you know, you don't need to break his wrist or break his... They had me like... With my legs bent up, holding me, and my wrist behind like that bent up, and Yami like stuck up for me and said like, drop that out, don't go on like that with him, do you know what I mean? Because Yami is one of the boys like us, and we we wouldn't tolerate it, do you know what I mean? Stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I've got quite a few stories about Yami, I've got nothing but love for him, you know what I mean? He's, he's such a nice person, um, I wish him all the best. And um, even in prison, like, he was good at um, drama. Um, if a play come up in a prison, he would put himself forward to do the play, do you know what I mean? And he'd, the role model, he was a good actor. Um, he's got some really good quality bits about him, Yami, do you know what I mean? I love him to bits. Um, I couldn't actually believe it. When I spoke to him, um, and he said, that, I think he said he's uh, he come out in 2017. Or two we interviewed him quite quickly, didn't we, James, when he, yeah. just after he got out? 
Do you remember when that was? July, maybe. 2017. I think it was 2017, wasn't it? It was hard when we went round there. So summer, August, July or August. Four years we've been doing this then, four or five yeah. years now. Time flies when you're having Doesn't fun, it? Sean, it flies. God, it's gone like that. Yeah, I heard that um, Yami was out and I, I got his number from another another good friend of mine. I got his number and I rang him up, do you know what I mean? I had a, had a good chat with him and we clicked, do you know what I mean, straight yeah, away. Yeah. And um, he's a good person, Yami, you know. Yeah. He's a bit like myself, you know, I got stuck in the system. Prison wasn't a deterrent for, for him, mm. nor for me. Um, Yami is a people pleaser. I'll say that online. Yami loves to uh, please people. Um, Yami, from what I know Yami of, he'll put someone else before he puts himself forward. So he'll put someone else first before he, before he puts his... You mean that in a good way, the people pleaser? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First, yeah. Um, he'll go that extra little bit to help someone else out. Do you know what I mean, Yami? He's, um, mm -hmm. he's a very, very good person and I wish him all the best. Um, he came out here and we had a country walk and um, I'll, I'll tell this for the viewers, we were going down a very steep hill and I started trotting down it because of the gravity. And next thing I just hear Yami's like, get out of the way. And he's, he can't stop himself. He's just flying down this hill. That's Yami. Hits the bottom and there's like a ditch and all these trees. He flips upside down. Flips upside down. And then he, I thought, he's going to break his neck. And he does like a karate break fall, spins, and just stands up. It's like gymnastics. Yeah, yeah. And he, he goes, Sean, imagine if I had just broke my neck and died, what they would have been saying about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what a So he's doing well then, Yami. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he had one channel, now he's got another channel. I've noticed he had and, one um, channel, yeah. He's, 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 he's people, he's got a loyal following uh, very fast. Yeah, I think it, it took me... Um, Five years to get 5,000 subscribers. I think Yami's had it in, in less than a year. Yeah, I mean, I've had my YouTube channel up since, God, it's eight years old. But I wasn't um, uploading content onto it. I only created it more for, to see if I could do it. Yeah. It's only the last few years when um, the podcasts have started picking up. Mm. Like I've start, I realised that, you know, I should be putting content on my own channel and, and doing bits to it. Uh, to help others, is, yeah. and that's what I'm doing. But yeah, I've subscribed to um, Yami's first channel, and I think he's got a second one now too, yeah. hasn't he? Yeah, the Yami B TV, I think it's called. Right, right, because yeah. the first one was, it, it, is, it, what is, it is what it is. That's yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's remind the viewers then what your channel and what your book are called. Yeah, my book's called The South London Ballstool Boys Towers. It's on Amazon. Um, it's doing pretty well. I mean, it's flying off the shelves. Um, and a lot of that is down to Sean Atwood. The, the first podcast and the second podcast, um, my sales have gone literally way up since I've been on them, been on your shows. So, you, you know, um, I, I can't thank you enough for giving me the opportunity because my book sales has gone up since I've been on your channel. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing stuff. Um, but yeah, it's called the South London Balls to Boys Tower. It's on Amazon. Um, and I've got uh, my YouTube channel is just called Joey Barnett. It's the same as my name. Um, that's picking up too. I'm trying to upload no, new content onto it all the time. Um, and now I've started um, like interviewing other guests, um, just more like friends really who I know, you know. I'm never gonna be a Sean Atwood or, or anyone as like successful as you in the podcast game, Sean. But what I wanna do is um, my little channel, I'm just after creating awareness, you know, more, 
more than anything else. Um, Appreciate that, but when I started out, it was um, I wrote little notes, and my aunt smuggled them out to jail and put them online, and I thought no one would ever read them. So you, you know, we all we're all on the same path. At, you know, power yeah. of the internet is unbelievable. Power of the internet, power of YouTube, yeah, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, before 2010, before I met my Mrs. Sam, I could just about read and write. You know, um, I think I said on the, the second podcast I learned in Wayland how to read and write. And I'd done a, um, I took sitting gills in literacy, so it wasn't it wasn't until 2010 that I could read and write. Now I've got a book published on Amazon, and I'm in the process of doing the second one. Um, what we need to have a chat about, actually, Sean, for yeah, the Audi. Yeah. And did we do an audio book on your first one yet? No, we haven't done it yet. We've we'll we talked about, about that as well. It. Yeah, yeah. Let's remind me about that, about that um, then. And um, so there were some things that you wanted to talk about then today. Yeah. You had some. Yeah, um, 2010, when I got out, um, I think that's where we left our last podcast. Did we talk about your, your day of your release on the last one? Yeah, we talked that's about we when it. my sister picked me up. Oh, yeah. And we had a bottle of champagne and we had a party that day, you know, I got out. Um, and um, a week after I got out on that sentence, Sean, um, through um, one of my sister's friends... Um, I met a girl called Sam, um, Samantha Smith. She was my sister's friend, so I half knew her anyway, you know. Um, and where I was only just come out of jail, I was missing like a woman in my life, you know. Um, and I wasn't in, I was never one to um, mess about with loads of different girls and, you know, I've never been that type of a person. I've always been like, if I'm with one woman, that's the woman I'm going to stay with. And I plan to settle down with her, you know. Um, that's the type of person I am, do you know what I mean, Sean? And we clicked really quick, me and Sam. Um, but uh, she had a few problems, Sean. Um, she was um, battling um, alcohol addiction at the time when I met her. And also um, a, a very, very messy, bad domestic relationship, what she'd just come out of. Um, she was getting beaten up on a regular basis. Um, Sam's got two two daughters, which is, I treat them as my stepkids, because I've, I've been with her for 11, 12 years. Um, yeah, uh, Charlie and Amy. And, you know, um, Sam um, was getting beaten up on a, regular basis by a bloke when I just before I got with her so she didn't have no trust for men um I don't think she trusted me at first because obviously I'd just come out of jail and to her I'll just be like the last one and the last one and the last one but we found each other and for some reason we just clicked we just gelled um we got together really quick and after about after around six weeks, eight weeks, Sam had her own flat, so I moved in with Sam after a few months. Um, I supported Sam through the alcohol addiction. Um, I weaned her off the alcohol. I made sure she she wasn't relapsing. Um, I was there for her. Um, she was also there for me to stop me. That's not an easy thing to do. How did you do that? Weaned her off of um, alcohol and took her around to her doctors and put her onto a script. Um, and she, I don't know why, but she, she followed the program with the doctors 
and weaned her well, weaned her way off of her alcohol and got off of it. Um, it wasn't easy, Sean, and... Such a destructive drug as well, isn't it, alcohol? We did split up the first few weeks, you know, um, because her head weren't in the right place at that time. I was, because I was fresh out of jail, and I could half, I could half see what I wanted. Um, there was something in Sam which I liked straight away, unlike the rest of them. Um, I, I, at that time, I felt that she was the one for me, and she was the one I was going to settle down with. Um, Although at that, at, at that time she wasn't in that right place because we split up a few times. And she said to me a few times, go and get out, leave. And I had to do that a few times. Um, but yeah, we persevered with each other and um, we, we smashed it. Um, I got her off for a drink. She um, showed me a different way, um, totally different than what I knew in life. I had triggers, I had old associates, I had friends trying to pull me back into the game, offering me bits of work, offering me drugs. Um, so Sam was pulling me towards her and my mates were pulling me the other way. So it was like a tug of war type of thing. Um, and I was in the middle of it. So it was my choice. But this time round, I felt like I was in control of things a little bit better than what I was years ago. Um, whether that be down to experiences, um, bad experiences, good experiences, or knowledge, or doing so many years in prison, just getting to the stage where like, you've had enough, you know, um, and you need to turn turn your life around. And I got to that stage in 2010, um, especially after the John Venables um, thing too. Um, that, to be honest with you, Sean, that gave me a little wake-up call, um, you know, because it was touch and go. Um, where I only had one day left on my sentence, it was touch and go. But, um, yeah, I had so many triggers and getting texts on the phone from different old associates, you know, knowing that I'm out of prison. I've got this, I've got that, I've got this, you know. I myself was battling with a drug addiction too, you know, because when you go to prison, um, the currency in prison is heroin, smack, brown. Um, so I went in clean and come out with an habit. Um, obviously went in, sorry, I'll rectify that. Sorry for viewers. I went in with a cocaine habit and obviously you can't get cocaine in jail or you can, but you will not be able to maintain your habit in jail with cocaine. Um, uh, after being in, in prison for a few months with that big 12 year sentence, I was looking around me and I was seeing like a lot of the older school boys, many of my mates, all dabbling on the quiet, all taking brown. Um, I found out why they was taking it at the time because I tried it and it took you away from prison, it took you out of that atmosphere, it took you out of that situation and you was in a cocoon, you was wrapped up in cotton wool, cotton wool and you was gone for a day. So if you could do this in prison on a long, long sentence, who wouldn't, do you know what I mean? But yeah, the dealers in there were making a fortune um, and that was the currency in, in prison. So um, I went in with an addiction on crack and I come out on that big sentence with an addiction on heroin. What's the difference between heroin street prices and heroin prison prices? So, um, on the street, uh, a five pound bit of heroin would be worth in prison, 
let's say three to four hundred pound. Bloody hell. So a gram of heroin on the street is eighty to hundred pound now. In prison you'd be making five or six hundred pound. And this is another insane part of the drug laws, war on drugs. You've got dealers who get out of prison making less money selling drugs out of prison than they were selling in prison. And when they get busted and go back to prison, they go back to making the big money. Cra crazy, isn't it? Crazy. Absolutely vicious circle. Yeah. So, yeah, um, in a lot of the long-term jails, there is heroin available. Um, it comes at a price, you know, but um, that's where I got my first first um, habit was prison, Sean. It's horrible to say, but it was. And I come out and um, I had to go onto a methadone program. I had to engage with a team. Um, it took me five, six years to get off it, to get off methadone script. It took me five, six years and and when people say about withdrawals, you know, um, you don't know what withdrawals are, you know, I've spent many, many nights withdrawing, do you know what I mean, Sean, and I knew I was ready to come off of it, but it had that power over me. So if you didn't have it, your body's aching for it. You wake up every morning, that's the first thing on your mind. If you haven't got it, your stomach goes, you go to the toilet, you know, you're, you're anxious, you're, you make sure you want to get that next hit. So it's not like cocaine. With cocaine, you don't, you don't get physical withdrawals. But with heroin, it's different. You get physical withdrawals. withdrawals. And that's why many uh, heroin addicts can't quit it, because of withdrawals, it's just too much. I had a cellmate, he'd just been arrested for the 155th time for small offences. And um, prior to that arrest, he'd been injecting heroin a lot. Uh, every now and then he'd mix coke and crystal meth into it as well. And um, for the first month, he was like asleep with his eyes open, his hair was falling out. He was soiling his boxer shorts and he was like in agony and they, they like wouldn't give him anything in Arizona. Yeah. And I just saw it. it was like he was going through hell, absolute hell. It's your worst nightmare, you know. Yeah. There's, there's no easy way out at all of coming off of heroin. There's no easy way out. Yeah. And the old saying is like, you pay for the you pay for the good times, and you do. You pay dearly. Um, it's not such a good time beyond heroin, but when you're in jail, yeah. if that's what gets you away, then. It's quite easier to take it, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the people I spoke to s suffered horrendous things as kids as well. Never been given the tools to deal with that. So then they get on the heroin and then they're just away, like you say. All that PTSD and the anxiety of what's happened to them is gone, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah, you know. And that's what you're trying to help the public understand. Because the old perception, and I was, I had that old perception was, heroin addict lives under a bridge, stealing all day, lock them up, throw away the key. But they're actually society's most traumatised and vulnerable people, a lot of them. Of course, yeah, I mean, they're human beings at the end of the day. And, you know, a lot of them, a lot of heroin addicts actually didn't, wouldn't want to be in the situation what they're in. Yeah. And if they could sort themselves out and not take it, then they would. But it's the withdrawals from it is too much. Yeah, we need to introduce the Portuguese method, 
where they decriminalised it, got the health teams to talk to them because they wasn't scared of getting arrested, and got the users down for over 100,000 to less than 50,000 in wow. record time. Yeah, you see, they've got nothing like this in play. Um, and, and nowadays, when you go to jail, unlike years ago, um, Sean, I remember doing bird years ago, and like you always see a smackhead coming in jail from day one, from dot one. I can always remember smackheads coming in jail. But years and years ago, you swerved them. You know, I looked down, I did. I looked down at them, and I definitely wouldn't entertain them. Um, and those are an outcast. But now, I mean, now it's accepted in prisons. And, you know, if you went to prison years ago with an addiction, and you told a doctor you were addicted to heroin or anything like that, it'd make you cluck it out and withdraw in a cell. There was no help. Now, there's methadone programs run inside prison, which is pharmaceutical heroin. So basically, these drug-fueled inmates what are going into prison for committing crimes to fund their habits, they're also getting drugs given to them now in prison. Whereas years ago, those left in a cell to withdraw and cluck and they come out a better person, clean. Now, they're on methadone programs. That's how much, that's how much it's changed so much. Um, so what do you think about your own experience with methadone? I mean, it stops you from taking heroin um, because, because obviously it's, it's an opiate. Um, but it won't stop you from scoring heroin. Um, you've got to want to stop that yourself. So basically, it takes away that um, it takes away that feeling of waking up every morning, of having to go out to get money to fund your habit and worrying about where you're going to get your next bit of gear from, right? So that works like that um, because you wake up in the morning, you go to your chemist, you get your methadone, and you're right as rain for the rest of the day, and it's it's a, it's a, a cycle like that. So I agree with it up to an extent like that, and many people have got clean down to it, but they don't tell you, before they put you on it, it's just as hard to come off as it is heroin, methadone, they're the same opiates, it's just one is a pharmaceutical liquid and the other one is heroin, but they're both the same withdrawals off of them. Um, so yeah, I mean, people look down their noses at me, or want to think of me in any other way because like, I was addicted to heroin. That's your prerogative, that's up to you, do you know what I mean? But I can honestly say that I was addicted to it. You know, I went onto the program um, and successfully come off of it and I'm clean now, I've been clean now for 10 years. So um, two, it was about 2011 when I got clean. Um, I've also stopped smoking THC now, and all. Um, I've gone on to CBD, I think it is, uh, Sean, which is legal. They should have made it legal years and years ago. Um, but yeah, I'm buying my CBD out of Holland and Barrett um, these days. I've gone up in the world a little bit. Um. So you got out, your missus had an alcohol problem, you had your problem, and um, somehow you guys managed to sort those problems out. Right, yeah, I was, um, what happened was, Sean, was when I come out of jail, I was getting targeted and I was getting harassed 
on a daily basis by the police. Uh, what what form of harassment? I was getting followed. Um, at first, I thought it was paranoia, but it, it soon became apparent that it wasn't because they pulled up beside me a few times and undone their window as I stopped and said, what are you up to, Joey? I hope you're behaving yourself, um, you know. I've just, I was aware of it, do you know what I mean? And, and I know for a fact that um, when you come out of jail from um, committing armed robberies, you're on the radar because the police are automatically thinking that you're going back to be an armed robber again. Um, and they put you under, under observation, which is uh, in the criminal underworld, we call it ready hour. Um, ready eye. Ready hour. That's, What's the I meaning of that ready eye, like the, the behind That it. means it's being watched. It's being watched. So if, like, if you go on to, um, I'll, I'll put something in. So if you go on to a job, uh, say I was going to commit a robbery with you, and um, the police was aware of the robbery we was going to commit, and they was watching it through intelligence or through a glass or through the leak getting leaked out, the information getting leaked out. That's called ready eye. The police are watching it. So I was being ready eyed on a daily basis. Um, and it got to me in the end, Sean, do you know what I mean? Because they was just pulling me up for the, for the sake of pulling me up. They knew I was insured. They knew I had a full license. They knew I had an MOT. And they knew that I would certainly wouldn't carry anything in my car if I was going to carry anything. I'm not that stupid. Um, but yeah, they was pulling me up at least twice a week for a few years, Sean harassing me um, and sat, my family had moved to Little Hampton um, previously many years before so most of my family was in Little Hampton West Sussex um, which was the place where I went when my first my mum and dad first moved there um, and I met a few good guys um, I'd like to mention one of them my names is Danny Smith um, he comes from London but he was the first chap what I see in the, the pubs in Little Hampton, and we clicked, we gelled. Um, he could relate to me, he was a worker, um, and we used to go out drinking together, and we'd done everything together, me and Danny Smith, but he was not a criminal, he was a worker, and, you know, we had a good bunch of mates around us in Little Hampton, Sean, um, and it was different. The boys in Little Hampton, who, who I moved with, was different to the boys in London. Um, you know, you've got Andy Chato, which is called the uh, the General in Little Hampton. He's one of the chaps. Uh, Mickey Strevens and Georgie Strevens, Danny Smith, Doobie. There's so many boys around it. And, um, you know, it was like moving from a school to kindergarten type of thing. Because um, Little Hampton was full of Londoners anyway. So, um, yeah. So, because Sam was also battling the addiction with alcohol... Um, and most of my family was in Little Hampton and I knew the police were following me on a daily basis um, and it was getting to me and I made the final uh, decision to move uh, to move away from it and get away from it um, and to start a fresh and new life um, back with my family um, they never give up on me my family um, but they was powerless to help me whilst I was on drugs and I was committing crime they were powerless and nowadays, um, I'm there for them. I've got such a big following from my family. You know, I inspire them. They love me to bits. I love them to bits. Um, and I've got a great family network around me, uh, Sean. Unbelievable love. So, um, yeah, after uh, coming out of jail for a few years, I decided to move out and 
go back to Littlehampton, move back away to the seaside with my family and all my previous friends, which I met years and years ago when my mum and dad moved up there. Um, it was a bit hard for Sam at first because obviously her parents are still in London. Um, and, her, and she's got two daughters, Charlie and Amy, who I, I look up as my stepkids, stepdaughters. Um, they were living with um, Sam's mum at the time whilst Sam was battling addiction to drink. Sam's mum and dad, as luck had it, um, see that Sam wasn't in a good place and she's on a slippery road and they come in and offered to have the girls while Sam was going through the bad time, which really we're really grateful for um, because of, um, you know, anything could have happened later on. But um, yeah, so I moved up and um, we both, me and Sam moved up. Most of my family, well, all of my family are up there, uh, but Sam's parents are still in London um, and her, her girls have now grown up. They're in their 20s, Charlie and Amy. So they've fled the, fled the nest. They've moved away. Um, and yeah, I'm back with uh, all my family, back with my missus. Life couldn't be no better for me, Sean. I'm in a great place. Um, and I've got so many opportunities. It's, you know, we'd need another podcast to actually go over the amount of opportunities and, and new doors what's opened up. And a lot of it is down to you, Sean, your platform, coming onto your podcast. You know, so many people have reached, reached out to me if I showed you a few messages on my phone, you know, it's so inspiring and... Um, the strength of your story. To know that I'm helping so many other people um, with similar lifestyles and what I had, uh, I'm getting new messages on my phone every day. You know, I can help these people as much as I can and I will help these people and I do on a daily basis. Um, but I struggle myself sometimes, Sean, you know, I have got PTSD. I've, I've been diagnosed with it from a doctor um, I'm not a medication for it because I believe um, I believe in talking and I believe in the power of people. Um, and just because I have got it, that don't mean to say that anyone looks any differently at me. You know, um, my cards on the table. I've got mental health issues. Um, some days I wake up and I can't even look at people, let alone talk to people on the phone. Um, and the next day I wake up and I'm right as rain. I'm a loving, different person. Um, so, but I've learned to control. I've learned to control it over the years, and um, yeah, I'm told by so many different people that I'm such a good person, and they're so happy to have me in their life, um, and I'm making a difference to other people, you know, Sean. And that's what it's all about now. Um, so yeah, I've, I've done many uh, different prison sentences. I've been around many different people. Um, I've mentioned a few few um, high-profile names, what I know, and I've been around. Um, I've written a few, well, I didn't even need to write them down. Really, I can say them off the top of my head without him writing them. Charlie Cray, um, I know him, I knew him, God bless his soul. I was in Belmarsh with Charlie in 2000, year 2000, when he got 12 years for conspiracy to import Class A, which he'd never done it. Um, apparently, they found a hair or piece of DNA on the package and um, they give Charlie 12 years. They give him that as a death sentence, by the way, because he was 76, you know. 76. And they never, ever, ever found nothing on him. Or the only thing they ever got was a little bit of, I'm, I'm sure it was like either a hair off his head or something, 
silly lot, lot a bit of DNA on the on this package. I mean, uh, give him twelve years. What was he like then in prison? Uh, he lo everyone loved him and he loved everyone. He was he was like a really nice person, quiet, and he had a lot of respect for everyone. Everyone was aware of who he was, Sean. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, he was a lovely person. Um, Reggie Cray, I've met him numerous times on different different prison uh, sentences. Got any Reg stories? Uh, I come to Lewis in the uh, late 80s, early 90s and getting off the sweat box. And uh, as you come through the reception and through the gates, uh, you're all on the sweat box and the laundry just on the left hand side. And Reggie was standing outside the laundry with a pair of flip flops, a pair of shorts and the rest like looking up at the van, you know what I mean, and seeing who's coming off the van. Um, and I used to train with him down the gym. Um, he was on the lifers wing, but we used to uh, meet in the gym every now and then. And I used to train with him down the gym, down the gym. and he was such a powerful man. Um, I used to hold the bag for him when he used to punch the bag about. And I'll tell you, he used to send me flying. He was such a powerful man. Lovely man to be around. Um, Pat Tate. I met him, um, was in Chelmsford in 1991. What had Pat Tate done? He was in for fraud uh, and deception or something like that. Um, I, met him, I met him at reception in Chelmsford Prison. So I didn't really have too much to do with him, but he stood out for me because he had a suit on, he was dapper dressed and he just stood out from the rest, you know, and he was a big lump and you could feel his presence in the reception room amongst all the other inmates, you could feel it. And um, I went up to him and I, I went up to him, he had a suit on and I, I thought he was a solic solicitor or something like that. But yeah, we got talking and um, I later found out his name is Pat Tate. Um, he went on normal location in Chelmsford Prison and he was just one of the chaps. But I was very aware that he was, uh, was going to be a very high respected chap by the way he looked, the way he dressed, his era and the respect what people give him when he was in his presence, do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, David Fraser, um, Frankie Fraser's boy, I was with him in Belmarsh. I think we covered that on the last one um, when Charlie Cray and David Fraser was both on the cleaners together and they wouldn't talk to each other because of the outside riff many years ago. But they did never sort it out. But Dave, David's, um, he's a lovely fella, you know, bubbly, um, gentleman, a nice gentleman. Stevie Gillen, he's doing really well, the monkey puzzle tree. Yeah, his ch uh, YouTube channel has, um, he's carved out a niche really of interviewing these American gangsters. And he's, get, he's going viral, his, his channel's doing really good right now. Yeah, he's a great person, yeah. Steve. Yeah, what a great guy, yeah. Yeah, I went to his house and um, had some food with him and um, did, a, did a podcast in, for his channel as well, yeah. He was a different person when I was with him, Sean. Mm. Complete and utter different person. You wouldn't, rec you wouldn't have recognised him in uh, 99 when I was with him. He's completely changed for the better. Um, he was a lot slimmer. And he was he was a he was a game, you know, and he was one of the chaps. He was a lovely fella, do you know what I mean? Um, he jumped on my food boat actually when he first came to Whitemore. As soon as he came onto the wing, um, 
before he got to know anyone, I think I was one of the first taps what you see in there. And um, we was on the food boat with three or four of us. And I asked him, I said, Steve, do you want to come on my food boat? And he went, yeah, all right, Joe. Jumped on. We used to eat a bit of grub together. And he's done really well, Steve. He's, you know, really well. Razor Smith. Um, yeah, no, Razor Smith. I read his book. Wow, that opening scene where he describes the bank robbery, absolutely breathtaking. Yeah, he's, he's a brilliant author, Razor. And he, a great yeah. person. He's actually my agent at the minute. Is he? Yeah, he phoned me up recently. Um, Tuesday last week, yeah. Um, because because we talk on a regular basis. Um, and he works for the Inside Times. Is um, the editor of the Inside Times newspaper. So um, basically, um, he done a big um, article on me, on the Inside Times newspaper recently. And it went on the Inside Times, and it went a little bit viral in there. Um, one of the inmates who picked up on it and got back and t got back to the director of the Inside Times, which is um, is a one above Razor, and he's re he wants me to reach out. He's reaching out to me, the inmate in there, after reading my story. Um, so I got in touch with Razor. Razor said, "Yep." Yeah. He said, "It's all go." He said, um, uh, "But I was a little bit everywhere when I spoke to him because we speak all the time, and you know he's one, he's one of my best mates out here." So we speak, and he just said, "Look, you can. I can see your head's a little bit um, frazzled because of like you've got different appointments, you've got different podcasts, so many different people want you." He said, "Like, I'm going to help you out. I want to be your agent, um, which I really appreciate him doing for me." Um, so yeah, I've got him on board, um, and he's a very successful author, um, smashing books out. A great person. He's been on all the. Lad Bible and Minutes with and all the big platforms, you know. Um, and he's someone who, who I aspire to, you know. I look up to, but he's my best friend, which is really handy. Like I know him inside jail and outside. Um, so we got that connection, do you know what I mean, Sean? Yeah, you're in safe hands with him, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We spoke about the book, didn't we? Um, the published me book. Um, I'm in the process of. Uh, Getting my second book laid down, which I want to talk to you about after, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, publish me book. That's all. That's that's up and running. Me and my missus have um, opened. It's gone a bit chilly now, isn't it? I should have put my jacket on. Mind. Nah, it's all right. <laughs> me and my missus. Um, we both have got a soft spot for um, anyone underprivileged or someone. Or anyone who um, haven't got many people there for them, like homeless people. Um, and we've both got that in common, me and my missus, um, whereas she's got a lot of feelings for things like that, and so have I. You know, I wear my heart on my sleeve. And if I can help, if I can help one person, my job's done. It makes me feel amazing. And we started going out um, working from my car as um, a mobile soup kitchen. Um, searching the streets for homeless. Uh, that was probably about six months ago, eight months ago, and it's gone absolutely crazy. I mean, we go out on a regular basis now, and we meet this different people, different different towns we go to. We take soups, coffee, tea, sleeping bags, oh. blankets, coats. We've got a GoFundMe page, um, and yeah. So if anyone wants to donate to the GoFundMe page. 
all that money, every single bit of that money, money from that GoFundMe page goes towards our charity. Um, and since um, we've started doing this, me and my missus, we've had other organisations that have got in touch with me and want me to join them um, on their journeys. And they're well-established, like, up-and-running charities. So the opportunities are really coming in now, thick and far, Sean. Um, Make sure to send me the GoFundMe link so we can put it below the video. Yeah, most definitely. Well, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. Um, but, yeah, today, Sean, I do suffer with anxiety. Um, I do get some stories mixed up. You know, I'm just like you. We're just normal. I'm just a normal person now. I'm trying to better myself. I've got a great life now. I love going out for walks with my missus and the dogs. Um, as you can see today, I brought my missus on the journey because she's going to see her parents in London and we brought our little dog with us. Um, <laughs> I've got a British bulldog called Bruno. He's a big old boy, but he's around my sister Pam's house in Littlehampton because he doesn't travel too well. He shakes and he's sick and that. So um, we left him around my sister's house, Pamela. I've got two sisters I'd love to give a shout to, Pamela and Angela. Love you very much, dearly. Um, all my family too. I've got such a big family, um, network support. My auntie, Margaret Gilmartin, um, she's just lost another, another sad loss. She's just lost her husband recently, um, Big George. Who, and just before that, two years before that, um, she lost her son, young George. Um, George Gilmartin, which is my first cousin, I'm very close with. Um, he died at 43 years of age, and that's recently. Um, he had a heart attack, and by the time the ambulance got there, he was dead. Okay. They couldn't resuscitate him, and he was a fitness fanatic. They, they took a long time to get there. He, he didn't take drugs, he was a fitness fanatic. Uh, he used to train in the gym. Yeah. Could happen to anyone. 20 minutes he was there for. Um, but. My auntie, which was uh, my, my cousin's mum, she got a phone call to say that her son um, wasn't, had just passed, just passed out or passed away and to quickly get around the house where he was at that time. So my auntie Margaret, with her son Lee, which the house was only around the corner from where she lived, so they went round to the house and um, George was dead, her son was dead Jesus. in the front room on the armchair and he died of a heart attack. Um, ambulances come and they tried for so long to resuscitate him, um, but he passed away. Wow. Yeah, uh, I've got so many people in my family that have passed away recently, Sean, there's two. There's a lot of death everywhere right now. I've been noticing this, it's, it's, it's quite prevalent. Yes, yeah. you know, it's just a time, I don't know what it is, Sean, but yeah, the deaths have gone out and my family have lost so many members. Because um, you've got the pandemic and then you've got all the strain on the health system. That's the people who normally would get treated aren't getting treated. You know, a wild man, he, he tried to get in and they were telling him just stay at home, things like that. It's sad, isn't it, Sean? Yeah, and then you've just got sad. all these people dying because um, they, can't, they can't get in. Telling them to stay at home, what type of, like, you know... Yeah, yeah. That's, because of the pandemic and because of the COVID and yeah, yeah. the world's gone absolutely crazy in it. But luckily enough now, um, the numbers are coming down and we're coming out of lockdown type of thing. And, you know, because a lot, a lot of business have gone under and it's stopped a lot of people in their tracks. Um, yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, um, today, Sean, I'm a family man, mm -hmm. um, and my family love me being around them um, because I'm looked at as like a peacemaker um, or like a someone someone who understands everything in life. I've just got that ability to um, be that person. When you've been through a lot, you have um, something about you, don't yeah. you, that people can draw on that knowledge from Most the school of hardship. Most definitely. For instance, yeah. like, you know, I could be um, out in a restaurant, for instance, and there could be two, two men, might even be mates, having a row with each other and going to throw punches at each other. I've got that ability to break it up in and calm the situation down and show them how to look at the bigger picture. Mm. Um, so maybe it's because of like experience, knowledge, what I've done over the years, do you know what I mean? It's just given me that ability to um, have them skills, Sean, but yeah. I'm taking them skills and using them for my advantage. And you get respected because of what you've been through and people will yeah. then listen to you as well. Absolutely amazing, yeah. yeah. And it makes you feel so good, do you know what I mean? Mm. To know that you're helping other people out, Sean. And yeah, bring some good karma to the world the when there's all the craziness going on. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, I've got you to thanks for um, giving me this opportunity, Sean, to come onto your platform. Um, it's the power of your story as well that, that it's resonating with people. That's, um, you know, people are reaching out to you because of your authenticity, the amount of years that you've served, the fucking hardships, the ups and downs, and to come out with this indomitable spirit. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. You know, I just want to help people now, and I just feel it's my turn to um, give, back in, give back into the community what I take, what I, not what I took out of it, because I took so much out of it, you know, I was horrible for so long, but... Yeah. I just feel it, I'm at that age now where I can actually help other people and I can make a difference in life. And, you know, money, material things and things like that is not, it does, doesn't give me the satisfaction what is what gives me the satisfaction out of helping someone. Yeah. Just through listening to them, speaking to them, mm -hmm. money couldn't buy that, do you know what I mean? And that's what we'll look back on, isn't it? When we're about to die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the <laughs> difference, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I hope I ain't soon, Sean, but <laughs> my journey's only just started. <clears throat> yeah, so how many prisons have you been in then over the in entire incarceration? Is it, is it so many you can't even remember? Or... I'd say, without exaggerating, Sean, there's probably only three or four prisons in the UK what I haven't been in. Yeah what I haven't been in. Wow. That's what I'm saying. The rest yeah. I've been in. Yeah. Um, oh, I'll go over a few. Go on. Belmarsh, High Down, Long Larton, Full Sutton, Whitemore, The Scrubs, Pentonville, Dovegate, Parkhurst, There's a few more, but I can't think of more, but there's a good 10 there. This is going to sound like a funny question, but which one did you enjoy the most? Whitemore. And why is that? 
and that was in year 2000. Um, and that's when I got the 12 years. Because I was around people, I was doing very long sentences, very similar people to me. Yami was in there with me, and we was like that, really close, me and Yami. Um, and where I've, I've been a criminal for most of my life, and I've been in so many different prisons, um, I felt at the top of my, my ladder amongst high-profile inmates. So that is where I felt the best um, when I reached the top. So I was, I've been at the bottom, man. I've been at the top. Um, so you were established. Yeah, I'm very established throughout UK prisons, yeah. There's, you know, um, yeah, I'm very established, young, yeah. Um, maybe, for, maybe for the wrong reasons and all, not the right reasons, you know, because I wasn't no saint in no prison at all. Um, I was a right little fucker. So how would life be different for someone who wasn't established? It depends on what type of prison they're going into. Um, you know, if you go into a long-termist prison, Sean, and you're not established, um, you've got people looking looking over at you and thinking, what's he in for? Um, who, who does he know? And if you're not known in the system, when you go in these long-termist prisons, you know, people want to know why you're not known, you know? And apart from people like Harold Chipman, who I met in Whitemore too, he was in there. Um, and he didn't hardly used to come out of his cell. Um, Is he the UK's most prolific serial killer, Shipman? Yeah, yeah, he killed... Yeah, he hundreds, killed of, hundreds of people, hundreds. was it? The doctor gave him... Yeah, yeah he, was, he was injecting them money with um, morphine. And and was he getting them to leave him money or stuff, wills or anything? No, like no. Uh, no, we thought that was the case, but it wasn't. It, it wasn't money-orientated. Um, he was addicted to um, killing people. He got addicted. How was he treated? Funny enough, funny enough, with respect. Really? Funny enough, with respect. I don't know how. Um, there is respect in long-term as jails. Yeah. So, for instance, if a young person, say in their 20s or 30s, have stabbed someone in their 50s and 60s, that's a liberty. So that young person will get served up for that and... It's a liberty. So there's respect in there. So because he was an old man and he kept himself to himself, he wasn't definitely not on a killing spree in prison. He hardly come out of his cell. When he did come out of his cell, he was just going down the library um, where he was studying. And that was over Wednesday afternoon. Um, but other than that, he was a frail old man. Do you know um, Tony Martin, another one? No, who's that? He killed... Um, he killed what... There was... Two travellers will enter these, um, his uh, farm in Kent and they went to burgle his house. Um, they got caught burgling his house in the early hours in the morning by Tony Martin. And Tony Martin come down the stairs with a sawn off, well, not sawn off, with a shotgun, an old 410 single shot shotgun, a 410. The two guys, the two um, burglars, obviously woke the person up of the house and was running out of the drive, out of his house. Tony, Mar Tony Martin shot one of the kids and killed him stone dead. He died on the spot um, and the other one got away. There was a big thing in the paper, in the newspaper, it was around 2008, 2007. But I see him in, I see him in um, 2010 in Wayland. I was with him, 
Um, but yeah, um, he shot one of the uh, burglars and one of the burglars died. And there was a big case going on. It was all over social media. And um, he didn't get nicked for murder, though. Although, although the burglars was running away and had their back to him, he shot one of them from behind as he was running off. So that should have been a murder case, really, as far as I was concerned. He shot that young kid and killed him. He got manslaughter. And um, he got a sentence. He, he got a straight sentence. He was in Wayland and um, he was another one, like a hermit. He didn't ever come out of his cell. Um, everyone was aware of what he'd done and everyone dropped him out and left him alone. Um, didn't bully him or nothing like that because that, that it don't go on in jail nowadays, Sean. Years ago it used to go on bullying, but nowadays you've got like kids bullying old men. Like it, That didn't happen years ago, do you know what I mean? But no one bullied him. Um, and he just got on with his sentence. He was another one, Tony Martin. Um, I met him. You just can't judge a book by its cover, you know. You just can't look at people and think he's gonna he's a murderer. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It just takes all walks of life. Do you know what look I mean? At, look at Ted Bundy. Another one. Charming, normal-looking guy. God, yeah. He's having going back and having sex with the corpses, wasn't he, and stuff? Was, was, was that the one in America? Yeah. yeah he escaped he twice. Up, he? Escaped twice. Yeah, I think I mean, they're doing another movie about him now. They just announced it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is this is what's what's wrong about this ju ju jurisdiction of the police. Um, it's just not no justice for things like that. Do you know what I mean? Um, Did you come across well, Fred West? No, um, no, but I come across Myra Henley. Did you? Yeah. When I was in Rochester, this was way back in the day way back. Yami was in Rochester too. That's how back it was. God, you're talking in the 80s. Um, it was a ball stall then. And it was a hard ball stall and all. It was really hard. The screws used to really like, abuse us and beat us up. And just to recap for the younger generation who perhaps aren't familiar with Myra Hindley, she was a partner of Ian Brady, the Moors murderers. Yeah. The Moors murderers. And this was up in the north. And they would take kids out on the moors and um, torture, murder, and I think they even did some recordings of it, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they have. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah and they, they were tormenting the, the social media and tormenting the police. They wouldn't tell where their bodies were, and like um, obviously the victims of the of the deceased wanted to put their um, family, you know, at rest, and they wouldn't confess. They wouldn't say where the bodies were and, and things like that. Um, horrible, horrible situation to be in, Sean, isn't it? You know, yeah. knowing your family's gone and you. But yeah, so um, I'll make you laugh actually, because we was in Ballstall, we had to get our hair cut. So they bought someone from Cook and Wood, which is a woman's prison opposite Rochester. So it's from like here to there. It's a different prison. And they bought Myra Henley into the Mouse prison as a barber. Unbelievable. Blinder to cut inmates' hair. She cut my hair. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We, Did you know it was her right no, away? No, 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 I didn't know until many years later. I found out, you know, I'd done a bit of research like years later about Myra Hindley. And that's when it that's when it clicked and I thought, God, she cut my hair in Rochester in the ball stall. But um That's a security risk from numerous angles. I mean it's, a known kid killer is likely to get attacked and 
if she's a killer, she's got bloody access to hers. Well, she's using scissors. Scissors. Right. In a ball store, which is young offenders. And that's what she was doing outside, killing young people. But you see, you see, there's two different worlds, Sean. Like, when you go to prison, there's many things that happen in prison what the public don't know. Murders, suicides, deaths. Bereave, you know, there's so many different assets to it, you know. And, but as soon as you go beyond that prison door, as soon as them gates are locked, you're shut off from the outside world. And the outside world don't know much about inside world, inside a prison. I mean, that's why that Inside Times newspaper has, has come about, because you've got inmates from in jail telling their stories, and it's going out to the Inside Times, and it's going worldwide, do you know what I mean? Um, That's how this whole thing with my mission came about, because um, I said to the guard in the jail, you know, how do you guys get away with all this stuff? Dead rats in the food, the cockroaches, the guards are murdering mentally ill prisoners. And the guard said to me, the world has got no idea what goes on in here, exactly. and the public doesn't give a shit about prisoners. We, exactly. they, basically, we can get away with anything. Exactly. This is what I was saying to you earlier on about paedophiles in prisons. This is why... You know, a lot of people that do them in prison years ago don't get, don't get arrested for it because it's all kept under the carpet. And, pe and people sometimes say, I'm, I, I read in the comments, they say, um, this can't be true, it wasn't reported in the media. Yeah. As if, like, the prison's going to say, come on, media! Come on, media! Let's, let's report a murder, let's report an, an assault. So our stats go down. See, they're supposed to be helping inmates out by putting you on courses to do get further, like educate yeah. yourself and get better tools and gain experience and things like that. It's another world. They're not interested. It's a completely different world where anything can happen. Anything can kick off at any time. And it's a big money spinner too, Sean. I mean, you know, how much money do private prisoners get for each inmate per year? Sixty thousand, seventy thousand, isn't it? That's what I'm saying. So they're yeah. locking people up for the fun of it nowadays. Like, they get paid for it. That's why they concentrate on the lowest hanging fruit, the drug users. But, I mean, nowadays, Sean, um, I don't think I could handle going to prison nowadays because um, when, I was in, when I was doing my bird years ago, you know, it was like a bit of ash, a bit of rocky cannabis. And then um, the MDTs come in, which is called a mand mandatory drug test. Um, they come in in the UK. And um, cannabis stays in your system for 28 days, whereas the heavy stuff, brown, is out of your system in two days. So it just goes to show you how many people switched over and, and, and used their brains. You know, you could go down the gym, sweat it out, drink a few bottles of water, the next day your piss was clean. Direct incentive to get on the hard stuff. And then, so it went from cannabis to heroin, and now from heroin, it's gone to spice. And this is something what is on a totally different Ricker scale. Um, the stories what I hear from different people imprisoned about spice is scary. Prisoners are writing to me from Arizona about it. It frightens the life out of me. I watched Sank on YouTube recently um, where there's a few inmates had a mobile phone um, and they was giving some boy um, spice for nothing, um, but they've got to slap him. To accept the spice, you've got to take a slap. And he was in a cell, and they give him this spice. He was smoking a few, a few tokes of it. 
and he said, yeah, come on in, hit him, hit me, hit me. And the geezer slapped him around the side of the face, but so hard it sent him over the other side of the cell, you know. Um, I'm thinking to myself, you know, if you go to that measure to let someone do that to you for a piece of shit drug what no one even knows about, it's on a different level. Um, and there's stabbings, there's so much violence around spice nowadays in jails. It, years ago, you know, as I said, we had cannabis or the other stuff. And it used to subdue us, chill us out, keep us down. But now it's, it's opposite, do you know what I mean? This spice, people don't know what they're doing on it and it's sending them off their heads. They, they could quite easily murder someone and then go asleep, wake up and not even know they've committed that murder. It's completely gone out of control. Um, so I couldn't go back to prison nowadays and I couldn't be amongst that, um, Sean. And also, there's another reason why I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back to prison nowadays because there is solidarity there was respect and there was morals amongst criminals years ago. Nowadays, there's none. So, for instance, if me, Razor, Yami, Stevie Gillen, all of my mates, yeah, they're my friends who I know very, very well. If any of us lot go to jail, this is how it is nowadays. The younger generation will want to take you out, take me out, just so they can go and tell their other friends We've just done Joey Barnett. He's a pussy. And then they climb up the ladder further and further and further. So now I'm a risk. And so is people like Yami and the other, my other mates. We're, we're now a risk to go to prison. Not because of the officers, but because of the younger generation wanting to have a pop at people like us at our age to take us out of the game so they could laugh at us and say, well, he's never that anyway. It's like, it's like the young lions taking out the old lions, isn't it? Yeah, and... And many like old lines like me have realised that and we've given the leeway and gone right, give a cold shoulder, get on with it. So I'm glad I got to that point, Sean, do you know what I mean? And in 2010, I'm glad I really sorted my, my shit out and really put my cards on the table and chose to settle down with my Mrs. Sam and have a happy, peaceful life rather than go back to all that turmoil um, and relapse on drugs. Um, one relapse for me on drugs is destruction. That is why I'm so strict on drugs now, um, because I've got a thing called um, I've got a thing called an addictive personality. So if I take mm -hmm. it, going back to the years and trips years ago, but then Sean, we didn't have to take loads anyway. Tolerance. Mitsubishi, a burger, a Cali, yeah. off our nuts, flying two, three days. That's how much it changed. Now, they're taking three and four of them. You couldn't take three or four of them back in the day, Sean, could you? No, no, it was um, no pure way. stuff. There's all kinds of crazy chemicals in the, in the stuff now. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like spice. What they're cutting it with is it's frightening, mate. It's, and that, too, is all a function of drug laws. Every year, the drug, legal drug market gets bigger, more toxic, more chaos, stronger drugs, more deaths. Fentanyl is, is now... I spoke to a doctor out of Canada recently, and he says, because of fentanyl, I wish we could just go back to the good old days of heroin. Yeah. And, you know, if, if people accept that measure of going back to the days of heroin, what is that actually saying? Yeah, and what's going to come next? You know what what's it going to take before the government reverses all the drug laws to stop this? 
If the function of drug loss, it's just going to get worse every year. Thing is, and also, there's, it was a bit like when I was growing up, there's not many opportunities for youngsters nowadays. Um, but saying that, a lot of them don't want it. Because if you want something that bad, you work for it. And you, you get to that situation where you, you get it. Do you know what I mean? Um, you sacrifice things, you persevere and... Um, you know, there's not many opportunities out there now for youngsters, and this is why a lot of them are turning to crime. Look at the knife crime now, it's gone up so high. I mean, talking about Darren G, you know what I mean? Um, I really agree with um, his campaign, you know. Um, is it change your life, put down your knife? Choose a life, not a knife. That's it, right. L5 alive. That's Darren G's, yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm a follower of Darren. Um, because of, um, you know, the word, he's got a good word. Yeah. Um, he's got a great word, do you know what I mean? And he is inspiring to watch him, you know, he's inspiring. Um, sorry. I'm aware of the YouTube, um, the, the podcast, like, battles at the minute, you know, um, where everyone's trying to strive to get number one and, num you know, the best. But um, I don't really get involved in that part of it, you know. All I can do is I can look at people how I see them, do you know what I mean? Um, and if, you know, if that's the case, then I don't want to be a part of that. Um, podcast wars and things like that that's just not a bit of me it's ch it's childish childish isn't it it was unheard of years ago sean i mean listen people like yourself give me the opportunity to come on your platform you know i've got nothing but love for you and uh, and thanks and appreciation you know well, we appreciate you sharing such a powerful story you know to go to come on your podcast and for you to give me the opportunity to get my story out there mm. and then turn against you and stab you in the back that's not how I roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, on the subjects of all these prisons then, I asked you what your favourite one was. What was your, the worst one? Sorry, say that again, Sean. Remember earlier you, you, you listed all the prisons you, you've been to throughout your incarcerations, and I asked you what your favourite one was. We, we covered that one because yeah, yeah. you were established, blah, blah, blah. What was the worst prison you were at? Parkhurst. Why? By far, Parkhurst. One minute. Parkhurst is um, on the Isle of Wight, so it's on an island. Um, all the most of the not all of them, most of the prison officers are related to each other. So how we looked at it years ago was those interbred. So if you have a beef with one officer you've got a beef with a lot of them. And it's known as dumping ground Parkhurst. And it always was. So if you play up in the system and you're unmanageable, you will get threatened with Parkhurst. And I got sent there a few times with Parkhurst. Um, and that's when I was at the pits of my hill. That's when I was at my lowest. Um, yeah, I had an argument with one officer. They put me down in a segregation unit. And I was coming in on a daily basis, um, bending my arms up, restraining me, put my legs up my back, um, you know, moving me from one cell to the other. And it got to got to a stage where I just got 12 years. Um, I was in the pits of my hell. I didn't want to live. I didn't care if I lived or I didn't care if I died. And I had to cover myself with my own shit um, to stop the officers from coming in, bending me up anymore. And I was like that for three days and three nights. What? 
in solitary confinement in a padded cell with my own shit all up walls and all over myself, in my face, in my hair. That way, I knew that the officers wouldn't come in and have a go at me. That's how bad I was getting bullied by the officers. Um, and it's called a dirty protest in the system. That's what it's called, a dirty protest. So that was my lowest point while I was in Parkhurst. I felt isolated. Um, what bullying tactics had they employed to re bring you to that point? They liked, unlike other prisons, um, Parkhurst liked to have full control of the inmates. So when they say jump, you've got to say how I. It's one of them ones. Because they're all related. They're all steroid freaks. They're all lumps. They train every afternoon in the gym. So they're intimidating. A lot of them are regimental. There's a lot of bullying going on. There was a lot of bullying going on in there. And um, I was in there for a few months and I decided that I didn't want to be in there no more. Um, so one day um, I went, I planned it actually. Um, there was an officer that kept, kept digging me out on a daily basis. Um, he used to call me a cocky little bastard. Um, you can end up with a life sentence, uh, you're, you know, bullying me. And then one day I decided that I wanted out of that prison and um, the quickest way out of that prison would be to uh, get a bucket and fill it up with piss and shit and go into the office and put it over the screw's head. So I see him on, I come out of my cell one day, I've been brewing piss and shit up in a bucket for a few days, running up to it. I see him in the office, I open the door and I park the bucket on top of his head. There was piss and shit all over him. I didn't care the consequences, I didn't care if they battered me, broke my body, bruised me. As far as I was concerned, I was going that extra mile to get out of that jail. And that's what you had to do to get out of there, you had to go to them measures because it was known as dumping ground. So to get chucked out of there, you've got to do something spectacular to get chucked out of there. And that's what I've done. Um, we call it, in the system, it's called a shit up. Shit up. So, yeah, um, I've done an officer with my own piss and shit. Um, you know, got bent up and everything else, what happens, got chucked down in the segregation unit. Um, they was moving me down the segregate in a block. They was moving me every, every few days into different cells and, you know, I, I believe that they was interfering with my food. Um, when they was bringing my food to me, they were spitting in it, putting bogeys in it and things like that because it was, that's what we used to talk about down in seg to the other inmates, right? That's the measures they used to go, do you know what I mean, to do things to us. Um, so I went on a hunger strike, covered myself in dirty shit just to get out of the jail. Um, I stayed in there for three days, three nights. Um, I stayed on a hunger strike for a week, I think five days or something like that, Sean. Um, and at the end of it, I remember coming to my senses and one of the officers, like, talking to me. And he was an old school officer. And he said, look, what do you want? Do you know what I mean? But that was after, like, I'd done what I've done. Do you know what I mean? And I think they knew the measures I was prepared to go to. Um, and I think they felt a threat come in front of me after I'd done one of them, because they knew that I didn't ever care in the world. Do you know what I mean? Um, I was known as, like, um, trouble in the system. Aggravation, a problem. I was a problem to the system. But when I, you know, long t in, when you get a long term, long sentence, um, Sean, you've got to do what you've got to do to get through the sentence. 
Um, and that's the way I got through my sentence by playing up, messing about, and things like that. Um, so yeah, I stayed in the segregation unit in Parkhurst after the officer spoke me down, got me in clean clothes, fed me, put me into another cell. I stayed in there for six months in that segregation unit. Six months. And I got an hour's exercise a day and the rest I was on 23 hour lockup. And I was in there six months. And then they shipped me out from there after six months and sent me to um, Swellside. Um, that's another story altogether, what's in Swellside. It's very, very violent, dangerous prison, Swellside. One of the most notorious, dangerous prisons there is out there, still today now, Swellside. Um, Were you established in there? Yeah, yeah, because my co-defendant was in there, Mr Big, who I can't name on here. Um, well, two of my co-defendants, actually, Sean. So, um, four of us got arrested. And uh, my other two co-defendants, was in Swellside, and um, the grass, what we spoke about before, he only got a fraction of what we got, but he was in another jail. So yeah, when I went to Swellside, my two co-defendants was in there, and it was like going from home to home, do you know what I mean? Um, but there's so much violence in there on a different scale. What was happening to other people on a different scale? Different scales. Um, Instead of them getting beaten up or anything like that, people was, got, you know, you, there was people getting severely hurt in there. You know, I witnessed a murder in there. Um, two, uh, two brothers went into jail for supplying drugs and then an argument broke out with another guy in there. And um, he come into the cell in the morning with a table leg and a nail hanging out of it, done him in the head of it and killed him. Left his other, left his other brother in jail to mop the pieces up and pick up all them bad things, um, losing his brother. Um, I've seen numerous people getting stabbed. I've seen numerous people getting slashed with double razors and toothbrushes. Um, hot fat sugar. But it was on a daily basis in Swellside. The, the, right, the, the panic bell was going off a good five times a day. And people were getting taken out outside hospital, getting stitched up um, on a daily basis. Um, because it's a long-term as jail, um, If you're um, a problem in the system and you're only a cat B at that time, they then send you to the worst cat B prison there is in the system. And the most notorious cat B prison in the system is Swellside and it still is today um, for violence. So that's what they sent you as another punishment or deteriorate. You know, if you pull out from the system, that's where you're going. So I got sent to all of them, Sean. I've done all of them. Do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, so that's where I am today, Sean. Um, I've got another book coming out. Going out, feeding the homeless. Um, now we're coming out of the pandemic. There's loads of opportunities, new doors opening up. I've got people reaching out to me and life's great for me, Sean, now. So. Good to hear. You deserve it, man. What time is your missus coming back? Whenever I go and pick her up. Okay. Because I've got to shoot to London from here. Okay, okay. Should we wrap it up here then? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah, no worries. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So please let us know what you have thought about today's podcast in the comments. All of Joey's um, links are in the description box, including the, bunk, the book. We'll put the GoFundMe down there. 
we will put his YouTube channel down there. So, you know, huge thank you to the people who've supported what he's done so far and what he continues to do. And I, I was really touched by the story of you going around with the soups and the sleeping bags and stuff like that. That's, that's... You, know, you know, some of these homeless guys, sorry to go back on it, but you know, some of these homeless guys, Sean, they've got nothing. They're at the rock bottom. And just to sit down and talk to them and listen to them, yeah, the it means so much yeah, to them. Yeah. And it makes me feel so great when I've done that. Yeah, yeah. Like I've come away and I've actually left a little bit of an impact on that poor person. Mm. And it, that makes me feel so good, do you know what I mean? If I see a homeless person now, I say, what's your story and find out what they've exactly, been through. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so huge thank you to the new subscribers. Subscription logo is down here. Thanks to James for coming out today in the heavy traffic. And... Um, Huge thanks to Joe as well, as usual, for coming out. All right, give us a hug, man. Yeah, cheers. Well done. Brilliant. Yeah. Cheers, man. Well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah.